Last week we began a, a new series, The Grace Way. A few weeks ago we were talking about the, the early church, the beginnings of the early church, and we, we saw that originally they weren't even called Christians. You know, it wasn't called a church. It was, um, they were followers of the way. And it was because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So we've kind of extended that idea now to talk about Jesus being the grace way. So we're looking at grace in the ministry of Jesus. One thing that I heard last week more than anything else was, well, you never really defined grace for us. And that was a, that was a strategic mistake on my part. Okay, because I, you assume that people know what grace is. So let me define it for us, okay? Because I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. Grace is the unmerited, unearnable, unwarranted favor of God. It is His love, His acceptance, and His forgiveness given to us for no other reason than just because He wants to. It's His blessings being poured out on us when we can't deserve it, can't earn it. And last week we said that nothing is more difficult for us to get our heads around than that. Grace offends us, scares us a little, makes us nervous. And if we're going to strengthen our grip on grace, then I think that we've got to be shocked by it. I think we've got to be scandalized by it. And I'm hoping this series of messages will be a shock to our system. Grace ought to change everything. Grace should change the way that we think and the way that we feel and the way that that we behave. And so that's why I wanted us in these weeks leading up to, to Easter Sunday to take a fresh look at the grace of God as it was expressed in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Last week we said we're afraid of grace because it takes control out of our hands. It, takes, it kind of takes us out of the equation, right? It's messy. It's unpredictable. It does not fit our conditional worldview. And You know, when, when you talk about grace, when you start talking about grace, it is amazing what people will say. You know, one thing is, I've never had an unbeliever. I've never had a rank sinner challenge me on what grace is. You know who speaks up in opposition to grace? You know who challenges you on what grace is? Church people. Church people who will say things like, don't take it too far. Keep it balanced. When the truth is that nothing is more unbalanced than grace. Nothing. We see it all through the Gospels. Over and over again. In His grace, Jesus takes everything about our conditional world, our conditional worldview. Everything about our, you must accomplish before you can be approved. You must achieve before you can be accepted ideas. And He takes those and just turns them upside down. Because see, Jesus wants us to know that there is no such thing as grace light. There's no such thing as a a safe, tame predictable grace. In fact, if grace doesn't make us say, 
wait a minute, that can't be true. That, that can't be right. It's probably not real grace. Remember last week's story? Wait a minute. Jesus is telling a well-educated, well-respected, religious man that he needs to learn from a prostitute? That can't be right. Wait a minute. Jesus is telling the church guy, the spiritual leader, the man who's there every time the doors are open, that he needs to be more like this sinful, immoral woman? That can't be right. So this morning, I want us to turn our attention to, to an incident from Jesus' life and to two stories that he told. And all of them, all of them have that, wait a minute, that can't be right quality to them. We're going to start off in the, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. If you've got a Bible, you want to turn over there. Matthew, Mark, Luke is the third book in your New Testament. And we're going to go to chapter 17. And we'll start in verse 11. You can, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow the verses along on the screen as we go. Luke 17, verse 11. As Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. As he entered a village there, Ten lepers stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. He looked at them and said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus, shouting, Praise God! He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet thanking him for what he had done. Do you remember that last week the prostitute in our story fell at Jesus' feet? There's something to that. He fell at Jesus' feet thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. Now remember, grace has got to be a shock to our system. And so here's where I want to begin today. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down. Here's what I want us to see first. Grace is not dependent on our gratitude. Grace is not dependent on our gratitude. Grace is unconditional. And so it absolutely is not based on us appreciating it or being thankful for it. Honestly, Jesus is doing a whole lot more here than physically healing these men of leprosy. But it's important that he, he is healing them from leprosy. It was, without doubt, the dreaded disease of the day. Leprosy took everything away from a person except for their life. It was, a, it was a disease that went on for years. Eventually it would take their life, but not before it had taken every other thing from them. They suffered in so many ways in addition to their physical condition. 
they were totally shunned. Totally shunned. They were forced to live in quarantine. That's where leper colonies came from. They, they could not have contact with healthy people. They couldn't be around healthy members of their families. They went to live with other lepers. They lost their jobs. They left their homes. They had to shroud themselves. They, they had to cover themselves up because leprosy is a disfiguring disease, especially of the, the face and the extremities. Nobody wants to see that, so they were forced to cover themselves up. And they had to, in many places, they had to ring a bell while they called out, Unclean! I'm unclean! Don't come near me! Don't touch me! You know, if they got too close to a healthy person... It was completely inbounds. It was completely okay for that person to pick up rocks and throw at them until they, they went away to a safe distance. I'm telling you folks, leprosy took everything from them. Eventually it took their lives, but before that it took everything else that meant anything to them. And so Jesus tells them to go and show themselves to the priests. And the priests in that day kind of functioned like the public health department. They were the ones who were able to check the men out and, and declare them to be clean, to say, all right, you no longer have leprosy. They were, the, they were the only ones, the priests were the only ones who had the authority to give them the go-ahead to rejoin society. And so Jesus doesn't just heal them. He doesn't just give them their health back. He gives them their lives back. They could go back to their homes. They could go back to their families. They could kiss their wives and, and hug their children, maybe for the first time in years. And they could go back to their jobs, to their, to their livelihoods. They could worship again. I mean, it really is, boggles the mind how much Jesus is doing for them. It, it honestly is like they are being raised from the dead. Jesus restores them, restores their life. He heals them. He, he, he gives them a disease-free, shame-free existence. It's incredible. But you know what really surprises me in this story? It's not that only one of them came back. And it's not that nine of them didn't come back. What's really incredible in this story is that Jesus heals all ten of them knowing that only one would come back and say thank you. And we can't stand that. Jesus heals all ten. He restores the life, the health, the dignity of all ten of them. Even though he knew that only one of them would come back and say, Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done for me. And we read this story. And what we say is Jesus is so kind. Jesus is, is so kind. He's so merciful. See how he's moved with compassion for these poor, suffering men. That's what we say. 
But if we're honest, what we really feel is ticked off at these ingrates. I mean, come on! Don't you understand what Jesus has done for you? Don't you, don't you have a clue how much He's done for you? Think about this. How willing are you and I to do something for somebody? To help them out with something? You know, to give them something they need, provide something for them. If we know, they won't appreciate it. I see those little half grins out there. We've been there, haven't we? We've been there. Parents, have these words ever passed your lips? We do and we do for you kids. And you don't appreciate it. You don't take care of your stuff. You never help out around here. Well, I have had it. That's how my mom said it. I've had it. I'm not ever doing anything else for you. You don't appreciate anything. Not just with our kids. The help and the assistance and the, the, the favor, the grace we show to other people always comes with strings attached. We always attach strings. Sometimes it's a, it's a big, huge rope. You know, it's like an anchor chain. Sometimes it's a little thin piece of string, but it's always got a string attached. It's always conditional because we want to make sure we get back something for our efforts to other people. We want to make sure that we get some, some gratitude and some appreciation and some good thoughts and well wishes from the people that we help and the people that we give to because our grace is conditional. And if you want to see this in action, leave somebody's name out of the bulletin when you're thanking people for what they did. We live in an if then world. Don't we? If you do what you're supposed to do, then I will help you. If you do what's right, then good things will happen to you. If you do what's right, then good things will happen for you. If you eat your dinner, then you will get your dessert. That's the world we know. That's the world we're comfortable in. The conditional is woven throughout the fabric of our lives. And so when something is unconditional, we can't handle it. It's unfair. Where's the justice? That's why unconditional grace seems so weird to us. That's why it seems so wrong to some of us. It all comes back to control. It all comes back to, to control. We like to think that if we do certain things, we'll get certain results. We'll like to think that if we've helped somebody, they owe us a little bit. We want the to-do list so we can check off all the right stuff so that the good things can come our way. Oh yeah, we, we like the conditional. It makes sense to us. It, it seems to work. And then along comes Jesus, and along comes the gospel, along comes grace, and all that gets blown up. Because grace 
wrecks everything. Everything that makes sense to us. Because our conditional love and our conditional approval and our conditional acceptance does not ever, cannot ever fit God's grace. Jesus is letting these guys eat dessert without making them eat their dinner. And we don't like that. We, parents especially. We don't like that. Let's, let's be real. Okay, let's be honest. We've got these little God boxes. Fifty years ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. And he talked about God in a box. We've all got those God boxes, right? And, and into that, we put all of our God stuff. We put the way we think He operates. And, the, and we put what we think He's like and the things that we think He ought to do and how He ought to do things in our world. We got it all in that little box. And then along comes Jesus. And first of all, He's way outside that box, right? And then what's worse is He takes our box and He tears it up. And He turns it upside down. And here's what we do. We're so, we go crazy. We're crazy. Instead of letting the awesome, incredible grace of God change our hearts and change our thinking and change how we feel and how we behave, we run off looking for other verses in the Bible that we think we can use to balance out grace, to soften it up, to make it more manageable. We... We love to try to use one part of the Bible to make us feel better about another part of the Bible that's upset us and upset the way we see the world. So I'm afraid I'm going to have to be a little radical again. But what I'm about to say is going to set some of you free. Not all of you. It's going to make some of you mad. But it's going to set some people free. Here it is. Grace has to become the filter through which we study and understand the Bible. I'm going to say that again. Grace has to become the filter through which we study and understand every other part of the Bible. Folks, we have got to put our grace glasses on when we are in the Word. We've got to. And the truth is, when we run into a verse or we want to run into a passage that seems to counter grace, that seems to make it a little smaller, that seems to maybe allow us to say, well, it doesn't go as far as I thought. It doesn't go as far as he said. Then the truth is, there's nothing wrong with grace. What's happening here is that we haven't properly understood that verse or that passage yet. Go back and study it again, this time with your grace glasses on. Because we've got to make all this fit with grace, not the other way around. I'm sorry, but Jesus heals all ten. Only one comes back to say thank you. But all ten get the same prize. Shouldn't the one who says thank you get a shinier prize? I mean, shouldn't he get a little something-something extra? It doesn't happen that way. And that tears us up. They all get healed. They all get their lives back. They, they, they all get the same prize. 
You know, this is not the first time Jesus does this to us. It's not the only time. Look at, um, look at the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20. Jesus tells a story. We start in verse, verse 1. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At 9 o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at 3 o'clock, he did the same thing. At 5 o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner, the landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wages. And the guys that had been there since 6 o'clock in the morning said, this looks good. Surely we're going to get a whole lot more than what we bargained for. Verse 10, when those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more. But they too were paid a day's wage. And Jesus, Jesus is a master of understatement in verse 11. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. I bet they did. Those people only worked one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I'm kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then. And those who are first will be last. Let me tell you who Jesus is talking to in this story. He's talking to the people who get nervous when the subject of grace comes up. He's talking to the people who say, don't go too far. Be balanced. You know, don't give people a license to sin. And Jesus tells that story and he just shreds our ideas about conditional grace and about fairness and about getting what you deserve. The people who work all day, man, they're impressive. They get up early. They go to work at 6 o'clock in the morning and they work all day, a 12-hour shift until 6 o'clock at night. They put in a, a long, full day of hard work and they say as they tell the landowner they worked in the scorching sun all day and the people who just work for an hour they're not very impressive are they they tell the landowner well nobody hired us well yeah there's probably a reason they're not impressive at all I mean they slept in you know, right? I mean, I've told you before, I'm not a Christian before 10 o'clock in the morning or three cups of coffee, whichever comes first. But they slept in all day. 
Either that or they, they just went and did what they want to do. They ran all their errands. You know, they, they did all the stuff that we'd like to do but we can't do because we're at work. And then finally, end of the day, one hour before quitting time, well, I guess I better go earn a living. And yet, the grace of the boss is exactly the same to both groups. He pays them exactly the same. And we go, wait a minute. That can't be right. Uh, Jesus, um, you might not have been aware of this. Not sure how they do things like this in heaven. But down here, down here, if you work 12 hours, you get more money than the guy who just works an hour. <laughs> in fact, you, you even get a little bonus. But you know what doesn't happen? Uh, Jesus is, you know, if you sleep in and you show up to work late and you just work the last hour of the day, you don't get the same amount as the guy who works all day. It's outrageous. Today we'd sue the guy. I mean, that's just true. We'd just take him to court. I, if I worked all day, got paid 100 bucks, and some jack leg... Comes in, works an hour, gets paid the same. I'm coming unglued on somebody. Can you relate? If you've ever had to work for a living, you can relate. The workers in Jesus' story are offended. It tears at their sense of fairness and justice, doesn't it? It does the same thing to us. See, the thing is, the workers want the compensation to be about the work they do. And so do we. So do we. Because we are totally bought into and totally invested in the idea that everything is conditional. We believe that God's grace is given to us, measured to us, on the basis of how hard we work or how faithful we are. But the point Jesus is making, both in Matthew chapter 20 and in his encounter with the ten lepers, is this. Grace is not about us and our gratitude or our hard work. It's all about Jesus and his generosity. Grace is not about us and our gratitude or our hard work. It's all about Jesus and his generosity. Last week we mentioned the prodigal son. There's another story that blows up everything we know about conditional grace and fairness and justice. It's found in Luke chapter 15. You want know, to turn back over there. If I was a better, more organized teacher, we'd dealt with Luke first and then gone to Matthew, but I'm not. So it is what it is. Luke chapter 15. Verse, uh, we'll start in verse 11. We're pretty familiar with this story, at least the general outline of it. But I think it's helpful to see what Jesus said. Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. 
About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father. He hatches a plan. I will go home to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. He knows. I can't get back in there. I can't get back in that house as a son. I've blown that chance. I can go back as a slave, though. Verse 20, so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. The prodigal son is rude and disrespectful and greedy and inconsiderate. And he says to his father, I want my share of the inheritance now, which can only mean one thing. I mean, you don't get an inheritance until somebody has died. So when he says that to his father, what he's saying is, you are dead to me, or at least I wish you were. I want my inheritance now. Can can you imagine saying that to your father? I know what my dad would have said after I came to. I, I know what I would say if one of my sons pulled a stunt like that. The father knows how irresponsible his son is. He knows his son is going to burn through that money. He's going to waste every penny. And what does he do? He gives it to him. And we read that and we go, what a stupid, what an unwise father. If only he were familiar with the timeless wisdom of the Bible when it comes to parenting, he would not have made such a foolish mistake. But he does. And the sun takes off. And and I love the King James here. The King James says, He wasted his substance with riotous living. He spent all his money on parties and prostitutes. And you know what? When you're in the club, when you're the guy with the money, you got plenty of friends. You got all the friends you want. But the money ran out. And when the money was gone, when the money runs out, his friends run off. And he's all by himself. 
And he ends up, now get this, good Jewish boy ends up in the hog pen feeding the hogs. To touch a hog made you unclean if you were a Jew. And he's so hungry, he's willing to eat the hog slop. They're feeding the hogs, they're not feeding the help. He's starving. And then he comes to his senses. And destitute and dirty and devastated, he goes back home to his father. To his father who is waiting for him. Who sees him at a distance. And I've always loved what Lee Strobel said here. He said, at this point in the story, we all become good Buddhists. Let me explain. There is a version of this story in Buddhism, in the Buddhist tradition. But it's it's basically the same story. Um, A son gets his inheritance from his father. He goes and wastes it all in all sorts of immoral activities and then goes back home. Only in the Buddhist story... He has to become a slave for 12 years to repay his debt, to cover what he did. We make good Buddhists because that makes sense to us. That sounds good to us. That's what we do. But that's not what the Father does. Jesus says he saw him while he was still a long way off. And he took off to him in a run. He ran to him. And without any regard for his personal dignity or propriety, he throws himself in the dirt and he hugs that boy's legs. And he never says, I will only welcome you if you confess every vile way that you wasted my money. He never says, sure, you can come back home if you grovel, if you apologize, and if I decide that your apology is sincere and heartfelt enough. No. Holding on to that boy for dear life, the father says, you're alive, you're alive, you're alive, and you're back. You're back from the dead. Let's have a party. And we go, wait a minute. That can't be right. Because we haven't even scratched the surface in understanding the lengths to which God went to save us while we were still sinners, the Bible says. Jesus is is the father in the story. Jesus is the father and we are the rude, disrespectful, greedy, inconsiderate, money-squandering son. And we disrespect our father. Give me my inheritance. Give it all to me now. And And I want to do this on my own. You leave me alone. And so we waste our... We waste our money. And we waste our time. And we waste our lives... 
And we waste, we squander the incredible gifts and opportunity and potential that God has given us. And then we go back to Him. And all we can say is, I'm sorry. I'm not even worthy to be called a Christian. I blew it. I jacked everything up. And what does the Father do? The cross tells us what He does. Through blood and sweat and tears, He welcomes us back when we turn from sin every single time. The father didn't need the son to make a list of all his sins. Because when he was in the hog pen, the Bible says he came to his senses. He understood how things really were. He knew he was guilty. He knew he'd done wrong. He was ashamed of what he had done. And he knew that his only hope to be made right, to be cleaned and forgiven depended completely on his father. I don't know who said it first, but I first heard it, or or rather read it in Chuck Swindoll's book, Dropping Your Guard, 25 years ago. He said this about the church. We're the only outfit I've ever heard of who shoots their wounded. It'd be funnier if it wasn't true but it is. You failed? You've blown it? You messed up? You want to come back? Sure, you can come back. And we're going to set that bar so high that you have almost zero chance of getting over it. And we conveniently forget that that bar was not set nearly so high when we needed to get over it. It both amazes and embarrasses me how much I love being given grace. How I so enjoy receiving God's unconditional grace and how excruciatingly painful it is when I've been done wrong or I've been neglected or I've been offended and I'm called on to extend unconditional grace to someone else. It just shows me again that I haven't got this grace thing all figured out yet. Sometimes I feel like that I've just dipped a toe in the waters of grace. I may be in up to my knees and just not aware of it, but sometimes that's how it feels. That's why I get offended. Annoyed at God's grace because it takes the focus off of me And my hard work and puts it on Jesus and His generosity. We will completely miss grace if we think it's about the recipient, if we think it's about the receiver. In fact, if we think grace is about the receiver, that's when we begin to make judgment calls. This person deserves grace. This person does not. This person deserves 
I'm feeling, feeling charitable today. 65% grace. This person, 5%. If we think grace is about the receivers, that's what we do. So don't miss this. Grace is not about the recipients. It's always about the giver. It's all about the giver. Grace is always intended to exalt the giver. That's the point Jesus is making when he heals the ten lepers, knowing that only one of them is going to come back and say thank you. That's the point he's making when he tells these stories and we say, come on, Jesus. You you can't pay the guy that worked an hour the same as you pay the guy that worked 12 hours. Jesus, you you can't let a a son who literally spent his father's hard-earned money like a drunken frat boy come back home without paying his debt, without working it off, without earning his way back in. Jesus, you just can't do it. And Jesus says to us, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. Grace has nothing to do with you. It's all about me and it's all about the Father. It's all about our love and our goodness and our kindness and our mercy. We will always struggle with God's grace if we think it's about us and our good behavior. Because Jesus just shows us clearly that God's grace is completely, totally, 100% unconditional. And here's how we know we're beginning to get it when it comes to grace. Here's how we know we're we're beginning to get an understanding when we are most aware of how little we deserve it and how desperate we are for it. And when we understand that we can't perform for it or earn it. And when we understand that if we're going to have grace, it's going to have to come not because of us, but in spite of us. It's when we understand that grace means we have to depend totally on Jesus that we begin to understand the grace way. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.